Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Buck did not read the newspapers, or he would have known that trouble was brewing. Not alone for himself, but for every Tidewater dog strong of muscle and with warm, long hair, from Puget Sound to San Diego. Because men, groping in the Arctic darkness, had found a yellow metal. And because steamship and transportation companies were booming the find, thousands of men were rushing into the Northland. These men wanted dogs, and the dogs they wanted were heavy dogs, with strong muscles by which to toil, and furry coats to protect them from the frost. Buck lived at a big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley, Judge Miller's place it was called. And over this great domain, Buck ruled. Here he was born and here he had lived the four years of his life. The whole realm was his. He plunged into the swimming tank or went hunting with the judge's sons. He escorted Molly and Alice, the judge's daughters, on long twilight or early morning rambles. On wintry nights he lay at the judge's feet before the roaring library fire. His father, Elmo, a huge St. Bernard, had been the judge's inseparable companion, and Buck bid fair to follow in the way of his father. He was not so large. He weighed only a 140 pounds, for his mother, Shep, had been a Scotch shepherd dog. Nevertheless, 140 pounds, to which was added the dignity that comes of good living and universal respect, enabled him to carry himself in right royal fashion. And this was the manner of dog Buck was in the fall of 1897, when the Klondike dragged men from all over the world into the frozen north. But Buck did not know that Manuel, one of the gardener's helpers, was an undesirable acquaintance. Manuel loved to play Chinese lottery. Also, in his gambling, he had one besetting weakness, faith in a system, and this made his damnation certain. For to play a system requires money, while the wages of a gardener's helper do not lap over the needs of a wife and numerous progeny. The judge was at a meeting of the Raisin Growers Association, and the boys were busy organizing an athletic club, on the memorable night of Manuel's treachery. No one saw him and Buck go off through the orchard on what Buck imagined was merely a stroll. And with the exception of a solitary man, no one saw them arrive at the little flag station known as College Park. This man talked with Manuel, and money chinked between them. You might wrap up the goods before you deliver them the stranger said gruffly, and Manuel doubled a piece of stout rope around Buck's neck under the collar. Twist it, and you'll choke him plenty, said Manuel, and the stranger grunted a ready affirmative. To Buck's surprise, the rope tightened around his neck, shutting off his breath. In quick rage, he sprang at the man, who met him halfway, grappled him close by the throat, and with a deft twist, threw him over on his back. Then the rope tightened mercilessly, while Buck struggled in a fury. Never in all his life had he been so vilely treated, but his strength ebbed, his eyes glazed, and he knew nothing when the train was flagged and the two men 
threw him into the baggage car. The next he knew, he was dimly aware that he was being jolted along in some kind of a conveyance. The hoarse shriek of a locomotive whistling a crossing told him where he was. He had traveled too often with the judge not to know the sensation of riding in a baggage car. He and the crate in which he was imprisoned began a passage through many hands. A truck carried him with an assortment of boxes and parcels upon a ferry steamer. He was trucked off the steamer into a great railway depot, and finally he was deposited in an express car. High-strung and finally sensitive, the ill-treatment flung him into a fever, which was fed by the inflammation of his parched and swollen throat and tongue. For two days and nights he neither ate nor drank, and during those two days and nights of torment he accumulated a fund of wrath that boded ill for whoever first fell foul of him. His eyes turned bloodshot, and he was metamorphosed into a raging fiend. Four men gingerly carried his crate from a wagon into a small, high-walled backyard. A stout man with a red sweater that sagged generously at the neck came out and signed the book for the driver. That was the man, Buck divined, the next tormentor, and he hurled himself savagely against the bars. The man smiled grimly and brought a hatchet and a club. You ain't gonna take him out now? the driver asked. Sure, the man replied, driving the hatchet into the crate for a pry. There was an instantaneous scattering of the four men who had carried it in, and from safe perches on top of the wall, they prepared to watch the performance. Buck rushed at the splintering wood, sinking his teeth into it, surging and wrestling with it. Wherever the hatchet fell on the outside, he was there on the inside, snarling and growling, as furiously anxious to get out as the man in the red sweater was calmly intent on getting him out. Now, you red-eyed devil, he said, when he had made an opening sufficient for the passage of Buck's body. At the same time, he dropped the hatchet and shifted the club to his right hand. And Buck was truly a red-eyed devil, as he drew himself together for the spring, hair bristling, mouth foaming, a mad glitter in his bloodshot eyes. Straight at the man he launched his 140 pounds of fury, surcharged with the pent passion of two days and nights. In midair, just as his jaws were about to close on the man, he received a shock that checked his body and brought his teeth together with an agonizing clip. He whirled over, fetching the ground on his back and side. He had never been struck by a club in his life and did not understand. With a snarl that was part bark and more scream, he was again on his feet and launched into the air. And again, the shock came, and he was brought crushingly to the ground. This time he was aware that it was the club, but his madness knew no caution. A dozen times he charged, and as often, the club broke the charge and smashed him down. After a particularly fierce blow, he crawled to his feet, too dazed to rush. He staggered limply about, the blood flowing from his nose and mouth and ears, his beautiful coat sprayed and flecked with a bloody slaver. Then the man advanced and deliberately dealt him a frightful blow on the nose. All the pain he had endured was as nothing compared with the exquisite agony of this. 
With a roar that was almost lion-like in its ferocity, he again hurled himself at the man. But the man, shifting the club from right to left, coolly caught him by the underjaw, at the same time wrenching downward and backward. Buck described a complete circle in the air, and half of another, then crashed to the ground on his head and chest. For the last time, he rushed. The man struck the shrewd blow he had purposely withheld for so long, and Buck crumpled up and went down, knocked utterly senseless. Buck's senses came back to him, but not his strength. He lay where he had fallen, and from there he watched the man in the red sweater. Answers to the name of Buck, the man soliloquized, quoting from the saloon-keeper's letter which had announced the consignment of the crate and contents. Well, Buck, my boy, he went on in a genial voice, we've had our little ruction, and the best thing we can do is to let it go at that. You've learned your place, and I know mine. Be a good dog, and all will go well and the goose hang high. Be a bad dog, and I'll wail the stuffin' out of you. Understand? As he spoke, he fearlessly patted the head he had so mercilessly pounded, and though Buck's hair involuntarily bristled at the touch of the hand, he endured it without protest. When the man brought him water, he drank eagerly, and later bolted a generous meal of raw meat, chunk by chunk, from the man's hand. He was beaten, he knew that, but he was not broken. He saw once and for all that he stood no chance against a man with a club. He had learned the lesson, and in all his afterlife, he never forgot it. That club was a revelation. It was his introduction to the reign of primitive law, and he met the introduction halfway. The facts of life took on a fiercer aspect, and while he faced that aspect uncowed, he faced it with all the latent cunning of his nature aroused. His time came in the end, in the form of a little weazened man who spat broken English and many strange and uncouth exclamations which Buck could not understand. Sacred dam, he cried when his eyes lit upon Buck. That one damn bully dog, eh? How much? Three hundred, and a present at that, was the prompt reply of the man in the red sweater. And seeing as it's government money, you ain't got no kick coming. Hey, Perot. Perot grinned. Considering that the price of dogs had been boomed skyward by the unwanted demand, it was not an unfair sum for so fine an animal. The Canadian government would be no loser, nor would its dispatches travel the slower. Perot knew dogs, and when he looked at Buck, he knew that he was one in a thousand. One in ten thousand, he commented mentally. Buck saw money pass between them, and was not surprised when Curly, a good-natured Newfoundland, and he were led away by the little weazened man. That was the last he saw of the man in the red sweater, and as Curly and he looked at receding Seattle from the deck of the narwhal, it was the last he saw of the warm Southland. Curly and he were taken below by Perrault and turned over to a giant called Francois. In the tween decks of the narwhal, Buck and Curly joined two other dogs. One of them was a big snow-white fellow from Spitsbergen who had been brought away by a whaling captain. He was friendly in a treacherous sort of way, 
smiling into one's face while he meditated some underhand trick, as, for instance, when he stole from Buck's food at the first meal. As Buck sprang to punish him, the lash of Francois's whip sang through the air, reaching the culprit first, and nothing remained to Buck but to recover the bone. That was fair of Francois, he decided, and the half-breed began his rise in Buck's estimation. The other dog was a gloomy, morose fellow. Dave, he was called, and he ate and slept or yawned between times and took interest in nothing, not even when the narwhal crossed Queen Charlotte Sound and rolled and pitched and bucked like a thing possessed. At last, one morning, the propeller was quiet, and the narwhal was pervaded with an atmosphere of excitement. He felt it, as did the other dogs, and knew that a change was at hand. Francois leashed them and brought them on deck. At the first step upon the cold surface, Buck's feet sank into a white, mushy something, very like mud. He sprang back with a snort. More of this white stuff was falling through the air. He shook himself, but more of it fell upon him. He sniffed it curiously, then licked some up on his tongue. It bit like fire, and the next instant was gone. This puzzled him. He tried it again with the same result. The onlookers laughed uproariously, and he felt ashamed. He knew not why, for it was his first snow. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.